So, welcome to the CEO huddle. Uh, and the CEO huddle is all about people being their own CEO and taking control of their destiny. Um, and if they don't, then somebody else is their CEO. So, that's probably not the best uh, life they're going to have. So, um, we're talking to people who've got interesting stories. Uh, and the aim is that we've got some snippets and takeaways that we can all learn from. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Danny Crates who is a, uh, he's an Olympic world champion, uh, European, uh, Paralympian champion, gold medalist. I, I tried to work out the gold medals, Danny, and I, I lost count. So it's great to have you here. Um, Pleasure. And we, we met a few weeks ago, and you, you threw me with a question, which was, you said, um, how, how do you think people overcome adversity? Or what's the best way? And I'm thinking, I should be asking you. <laughs> so I, I like to ask questions, yeah. Well, Powerful questions. Well, I, should, I, I, ask, I will be asking you that question. So um, you've got a, a really interesting story. And obviously, the headline is what you've done in sport. Um, but I'm, I'm always interested in what makes that happen rather than uh, what you've done. So um, can we go into... Uh, sort of sections for this. So, if we do pre-sports, so yeah. so growing up, and I mean, I've I've read your book, Danny Boy, which um, in that you say that uh, that's because it's a song that makes your mum cry. Well, uh, my mother was uh, Irish, so I sang that at my wedding. So I can I can empathise with that version. So, um, but reading reading your book. It seems like uh, we've got a young guy in Australia who seems to spend all his time drinking. That pretty much was it. I, I, uh, I, I went travelling to Australia when I was 20, back in 1993. Um, so it was almost kind of, you know, well, not no one could go anywhere right now, but up until this, doing Australia was quite a normal thing. Back when I was younger, I'm the only one out of all my friends that went. Uh, and I was always, I was, before we get to the drinking bit, I was always never scared to be different. So, and it's not that I wanted to be different to my mates. It's not like, you know, they dressed normally, so I wanted to be a goth or right. anything like that. But it was Good. like, not as anything wrong with that. But um, it, it, it was, for me, it was about, I didn't necessarily have to do what everyone else did because it, it just didn't suit me. So all my mates played football. I played rugby. Right. Um, we, most of all my friends, just because, you know, you hang out with people that, that you know, that they say the five closest people to you, you're the sum of, don't you? And that's kind of what it is, right? So I hung out with a lot of people and we all, none of us were going to be rocket scientists. We're all tradespeople. So a lot of us did apprenticeships in different areas and, and we were mechanics, electricians, instrument techs, that kind of role. Um, so, but they always, they just wanted to stay there. They did, a lot of them didn't really want to move on. For me, it just wasn't for me. Um, so for, for some of my friends, bless them, love them. You know, we were born in a town called Corringham, or Corringham and Stanfordy Hope next door to each other. They're in Essex, they're proper Essex. We were born there. They, you know, we bought houses there, had children there. Then you move closer to your mum and dad, living in the same town. And yeah. then eventually you die there uh, and you'll get buried there. For right. me, it wasn't about, I wanted to get out. So I went traveling to Australia and I did the Essex version of traveling Australia, which is Sydney to Cairns in as many pubs as you can do. 
Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I enjoyed my time in Australia, actually. It, it, was, it, it seems was like fun. you did. Yeah. yeah. It was. Cool. And the, the home for me was Airly Beach. So I spent a bit of time in Bondi just being a, you know, a, a layabout, really. And I, I spent some time in Brisbane and then I went to Airly Beach. And Airly Beach was where I found me. That was, that was five months I was there was, was the real me. Right. And, and what, what was that, though? What, what kind of feeling was that? What, freedom? It was freedom, but I had a job, I had a purpose. So it wasn't where before I'd just been traveling, didn't really have the purpose. I had the purpose and I had a job. It wasn't the toughest job in the world, but I had a structure. And I was, and I was working for a, uh, like a backpacker place, but a big one. So I was doing all the driving and the minibuses and stuff like that. But I was meeting people. And for me, that's what it's about. So like, it was almost like networking. I was, I was, my job was to go to where the big buses come in, the Greyhounds. And we right. used to have little stands. We'd stand at, And our job was to try and get people to come to your place. Yeah. Where I worked was a big place. It had a restaurant. It had a bar. You know, it had lots and lots of, it wasn't like a dormitory style backpackers. It had lots of cabins. So it was almost like higher end. And, uh, but it was about people. And, but then with that come a lot of freedom. So we had a lot of time off. So I learned to scuba dive, which is where I found my passion. Uh, but it's one of those luck things as well. There was a group of us that landed at the same time, all had different jobs, different places, but we all connected. And that's what made it special. It made it, that, that's, yeah, that's where I found myself. Right. And, and would, that, would that have continued? Would you, would, you be, would you be like, a, would you be today's version of, of Danny then? I mean, it's, and that, what, 20 plus years on, I, I could probably still happily live that life of no, no cares in the world and, and probably by this stage have long dreadlocks. But for me, it was a, uh, it was a period of my life. And I, I'd moved on anyway. Um, it got close to the end of my year and I then decided to move on, um, say goodbye to my friends. But it was very shortly after that that I had the accident. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that in itself i noticed that that in your book you kind of you don't i was expecting that there'd be a chapter about that straight away but you you kind of uh you refer to it and then you you move on so i mean that particular day you were you were uh it was at night was it you were driving with a mate it was actually it was, it was the boss i was working for so the, 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 the only thing that kind only Danny this can happen to right so so I'd managed to miss my flight home and it wasn't on purpose it was it was back in the day of paper tickets you know and you used to get your round the world ticket or your one year ticket and you and it was a paper ticket and if you lost that yes you could potentially get another ticket but it's going to cost you money and it's not an easy process so there's two things you've got to not lose when you're traveling and it's your paper ticket and your passport. Yeah. Uh, and, and my ticket was in the bottom of a backpack. It, it was right, right down the bottom. So it wouldn't get lost. And it was just, it was stupid, but it was just something, something as simple as I just got the, so I had, I had my flight booked home, but what I hadn't anticipated was from the, when you get the ticket, it itself has an expiry date. And it's not necessarily so. It's when you bought it, so it actually expired before my flight home. So I, I had my flight was booked within the year, but the ticket had already run out, and it, okay. it was a ma- it was days, right. and uh, and and I, and I was up in Darwin, and I had to fly out of Sydney, 
And I, I still had like a day potentially to, to fly, to still get out, but there was no flight. So, and it, it was just one of those, it was one of those situations. I phoned up Air France and I said, look, I can fly tomorrow, but I've just got to get to Darwin back to Sydney. And they said, but we haven't got a flight. Our flight doesn't go for another three days. Uh, so I said, that, okay, so can I get on that flight? And they said, no, your tickets run out. <laughs> but it hasn't run out today, but there isn't a flight. So you can't go today. You can get, so it was one of those. And it was just like, so, so what do I do then? They went, not a lot. You'd have to buy another ticket. So then I, had, I got a visa extension, went back to Brisbane to a place I'd worked for before, started doing some work for them uh, just to earn enough money to get my ticket home. So it was all legal. It was all legit. My visa had been extended to, to the time because I, I had a flight. I had a flight booked. I was due to be on it. And I, when I was driving up the coast, I was driving my boss uh, just doing the it was the last job. And all I had to do was drive from Brisbane to Airlie Beach. And we live, we was visiting all different places on the way. Just, just sales, selling, selling our, our, the place I was staying at, the backpackers. Just so at this point, you should have been home, really. Yeah, yeah, right. should have been at home. Should have been sitting at home. Um, and I, I, I was literally, yeah, I, I was about two, three days away from my flight. And, when, and that's when I had the accident. And it, and it was, um, it, it was what, some truck with a big tractor on or something? Did, was it, did you, did it hit you? Did you hit that? What it was just, it was a, they call them a ute in Australia. It's just a flatbed truck. So it's like a pickup truck, but their ones, uh, they put, they put the tray on the back of it. So it, it's, the tray sticks out from the side. So they're slightly bigger. So if you think of like the trucks we have here, like the full trucks or the Toyota Hilux, it's, it's the cab with the chassis. And then they put the, the, like the farmers put the big tray on the back so they can have it all different sizes, all different configurations. So there's a metal tray and it often sticks out a little bit from the side of the cab. And all that happened was we hit each other as we went past uh, and that was it. Like it just clipped because it was metal and on the back of it, it was carrying an eight foot long bulldozer blade, right. which was hanging out the back of the truck. And what happened was what we, from the, the evidence, what happened was the car, we, we clipped, which sent my car out of control. And I went round the back of the, the blade, we think, and it, and it just cut through the car. Wow. That and the side of his, the ute. Yeah. Um, but we never really got to the bottom of it. It was one of those, it was a while ago. It was in a very small town in Australia. It was with a 76-year-old farmer who was very local. And there was only one, one policeman in that town who right. came along and dealt with it. And um, he failed to notice there was an eight-foot bulldozer blade on the back of the truck. Later, we found all this stuff out. So it was one of those, yeah. one of those slightly, you know, difficult situations to get the truth. But uh, but we know for certain bits. Yeah. And um, so following that, do you, do you, so do you remember all that, or do, or do you remember waking up? So when did you realise the severity of what had happened? Um, I don't remember the crash. Uh, I remember, vaguely remember, I just remember coming to in a ditch. I remember getting sh shaken around a lot. Um, we'd gone 15 foot, after hitting the truck, we'd gone 15 foot back on our side, down an embankment. So we was now well off the road and, and down. And um, so I just sort of came to in the car, turned to the, the guy that I was with. Um, and then I noticed that there was an arm land on my lap what? and I just said to him, 
shit, there's an arm on my lap. Because no. I thought it had come from the other truck. So then the panic set in. And his response was, don't look, but it's yours. Oh. Yeah, so I tried to get out of the car. And my side was so badly damaged, couldn't open the door. He had gone by this stage. He was out of his car. But the, so I had to clamber across, got out of his side. Took my, I carried the arm out with me. Um, and then, and then luckily there was only one house on the road and, um, the, the lady, it was a lady called Kathy and, uh, she heard the crash. So while her husband was phoning for the ambulance, she came out to see, and then she saw me down the ditch and she came and just sort of sat with me or sat on me. Well, so apart from that, were you un- uninjured? Yeah, just that, that's the only injury and a scratch on my back. That was it. Yeah. Amazing. And that feeling, because I, I always think that. You know, you it, maybe it's a bit like um, uh, the Iraq War or something. You know, you kind of hear about things, and when when you see uh, when things have happened to people, you kind of see the after effect, don't you? But I think often you never get to what that particular day. You know, we can see you on TV carrying the flag for 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 the country and that, and and it's just. It's just that moment, isn't it? But I don't think people look at that moment and go, well, what must it have been like? I mean, it's just, it's just, it, it, it kind of makes you shiver to think about you sitting in that car. Yeah, I mean, it's a moment you'd never want and it's a moment you'd, it's probably why we forget most of what happens to us because it is too traumatic, but, it, it does happen to people and it happens regularly to people. Um, that's the best thing about being a Paralympian, right? I, I, know I don't think there is a way to hurt yourself that a Paralympian hasn't found. We have found, <laughs> if you think, we have found every single way to break, maim, lose bits, <laughs> yeah. destroy parts of our body. Like Paralympians have thought of them all. You, you, know, you name one stupid way to get hurt and there's a Paralympian that's done it. Yeah, wow. So then from, from being um, in the ditch, you, you then have to get to hospital, but you, you're presumably just completely in a state of shock and thinking about all kinds of things about what happens next. Yeah, I mean, the, the first people there were the fire brigade. They turned up first um, and they came down to, to see me. And they, I mean, I remember this bit. They, they, they was putting me on a stretcher and then they smell, they, one of them could smell petrol. So they then decided they needed to get me out of the way quickly, just in case. I mean, we've been down there for a while, so I don't think anything's going to happen, but they, I suppose they have to be, they're going to be cautious. Yeah. So they ran me up the, they ran me up the embankment um, on the stretcher, but they took me up feet first rather than head first. And I just remember I was sliding off the back of the, the stretcher and they were trying to hold me on it while they were running me up the embankment. But they then, the paramedics then turned up, I was put in the ambulance. I don't really remember that. Uh, I just remember being given the, the like, all I had was the menthol thing that, that, that the, like, the air and gas. Yeah. They wouldn't give me anything there for pain because they needed to get me to the hospital. So I just, I was just asking for painkillers and to be put to sleep. I just wanted to go to sleep. Yeah. Because uh, by this stage, I was in a lot of pain. And, um, and I'd lost a lot of blood, but there's two things they're not going to let you do is they're not going to let you go to sleep and they, they wouldn't give me any painkillers, but I would, they then took me to the local hospital, which was Serena. 
which is where they assessed me, stabilised me, then gave me pain relief. And then I was taken to Mackay Base, which is the big hospital. And that's when they did the operation. But uh, that kind of stuff, I just don't remember. Yeah. And, and um, I guess the first thought is, you think, what are your parents going to think? Was that in your mind? I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, I think about it now, what they went through. Um, my, so if you think back then, there's no mobile phones, there's no nothing. So my mum and dad got a phone call, I think it was in the early hours of the morning. And, the, and, it, and at this stage, it's quite early in the, in the process with me. So I'm in Australia, they're in England. All they get told is that your son has been in a very serious car crash. Um, and we can't really tell you a lot more other than that. So they won't tell them anything. They just tell them it's a very serious car crash. So my mum and dad, but they couldn't do anything because it was the early hours of the morning. So they then had to wait. And then my dad was straight to London to get a visa because, you know, everything's different. You go back to 1994, you can't do it on the internet, right? So dad has to go to London, go to the Australian embassy and get an emergency visa. Mum had to get the flights to Australia. And, and the way the world works, right, is if, if you've, you've, like, that's a different world because we can't go anywhere. But when you could travel more regularly, if you wanted to, if you were prepared to jump on the next flight, you can get it really cheap, right? So if I went to Heathrow and I just said, just looked, looked at the, and I, like Virgin Atlantic's going to Australia, they've got three seats on the next flight, I'll get it cheap as chips, right? Yeah. And I'll get to go to Australia. If you phone up and you say, we need to go to Australia on the next available flight. They'll charge a double. Yeah. And that's what happened to mum and dad. They got charged a fortune because it was oh. an emergency. And, but the, yeah, so they, they then jumped on an airplane within, that was within 12 hours. So within 36 hours of getting a phone call, they was, they was at the hospital. Wow. Which must have been tough. Then. Oh, terrible. Because they, they don't know what to expect and you just want to get there, don't you? And, and then I suppose you're then waiting for them to arrive and... Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was in intensive care. I was on a I was on a lot of painkillers. I I was coming still recovering from a major operation, so I didn't really know what was going on. I was just in and out of sleep. Yeah. Uh, but it was that, that when they arrived, that was emotional. I mean, that was tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. And then with with these things, so moving on, then where when 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 do you? Because I think there's there's kind of two things happens, isn't there? There's there's either it becomes something that, well, it defines your life either way, but it either takes you down one route or it takes you, it's like sliding doors, isn't it? Yeah. And, and for you, it, it, it became a, a, an amazing experience. But when you got home and you've then got to come to terms with this thing, I mean, then you've, you've, that must be a, a really strange thing to go through, that when you're, you're home, the reality of what's happened in life's never going to be the same, is it? Yeah, I mean, it was it, being in hospital was the easy part because you 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 you're in a safe environment and you haven't got to think too much. Coming home was the tough part. Yeah. Um, because then the reality started to kick in. Um, I was a trained engineer, so was I going to be able to go back into engineering? A petrochemical I worked in, so the big machinery stuff, big hammers and spanners and bashing stuff. That was my trade. And um, so was I going to be able to do that again? Just life was going to change. Uh, it, it, like the, early, the early stages were tough. 
and it, and it was more because of the just getting you because then mum and dad have to go back to work so you're just on your own right you, yeah. you come I've just I've come from the life that I'd had in Australia to just being back at so you, you've been, I've been away for 13 months so a I'm trying to process that because it's quite tough when you've been away for a long time to then come back plus you're trying to process the arm and the way I did it was I just I just went out parted as much as I could really with friends I mean it's not like I was partying partying but it was just it was being with friends it was yeah. it was socializing it was trying to put normality back in my life did, did you I mean I kind of joked about the fact that in Australia you you seem to do a lot of drinking and waking up where people had nicked your sleeping bag and all this stuff yeah. when you got home did you drink to kind of make yourself feel better or not <laughs> Not massively. I mean, I I I, I word it. I I did rehab the Jack Daniels way, <laughs> but it's uh, but but it wasn't about drowning sorrows. It wasn't about drinking to forget. I mean, did I go out too much? Yes, but I was a twenty-one-year-old boy, you know. So yeah, a twenty-one-year-old boy from Essex used to go to the pub a lot anyway. So I was just one of them, right? So and that's what we did, and it's um. It, it wasn't necessarily, it was, it, it was, it was more to be normal than to forget. It was just, it was just putting normality back in my life and not. Yeah. But did you, not, but not how do people, how do people treat you normally when, you know, they've, they've like your mates before you went and now you're back and you're different, right? So did you find that people struggled to be normal? Yes. I mean, some, and it, you find this in life, like, it, and it doesn't mean that, that some are some are more than others or some are less than others in terms of being friends but the one thing i've always said is it, it doesn't matter what happens to you in your life your friends are always there so in terms of my accident it, it, good friends will always even in your darkest moments will always make you smile or laugh mm. for, even for a brief moment they can bring you from where you are in your head and 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 take you to another place so I, I, I remember, I remember being in hospital and, um, back then say no mobile phone. So as the news spread and it got back to England and it, it spreads very fast and even around Australia, all the friends I've made in Australia now heard that an English guy had lost his arm and then they found out it was a guy from Danny Crates. Yeah. They started phoning the hospital. So all day, every day, this phone would ring, but every time it rang, the nurse would have to wheel this phone on a trolley with a massive long extension lead up to my bed and it's like it's for Danny again and I remember one of my first calls I got from the UK one of my friends at home I answered the phone and he just went I always said you was a shit driver <laughs> that's the first thing they said to me but that's what mates do right it's just yeah and that so when you get back so some of them they don't change right some of them they the way they react you didn't change some of them found it really difficult and almost stay away a little bit. Mm. And it doesn't mean they don't care. It just means they deal with things differently. Yeah. But it was, it was the, you know, I talk about, you know, there was a, I had a very good, strong circle of friends and it was that that got me through. And it was also, I had the friends that I grew up with and went to school with. And I also had the rugby club and the rugby club was a really in, in influential part of my life i'd grown up playing rugby i had very good friends there so i had the two elements that crossed over sometimes as well but 
you know that it was that strength in the people around me that that got me through yeah and and so when when was that moment where you thought right well i've got to do something um and why sport and and then you kind of seem to get onto this as more as a mission that you didn't want to just take part so what what was it that that you said right i'm gonna i'm gonna go off and start doing things with myself it was probably about six months i'd say so after about six months of not doing anything because i was just sitting at home so mum and dad are going to work and i've got brother but he was working um so they just you know say goodbye in the morning i'll just sit around watch telly and um, i remember the most exciting what i used to do is i used to walk up the, the town center in Corringham, which is about 10 15 minute walk probably from my mum and dad get myself something for lunch, get myself a scratch card, walk home, scratch the scratch card. If I'd won, it'd give me an excuse to walk back up there and <laughs> I'd change it for another one, right? So, and that was the extent of my days. And it was about six months in, I just thought, this has got to change and, and, and rugby is my thing. And so initially, I went back just to start training, um, just to be part of it. But then I started to realise as I got more and more engaged with it, that I could still play rugby as I was getting more and more physical in the training I was realizing that there was a potential that I could play again and, and that's when we set the, the, the date that I was going to play rugby again and that was almost a year to the accident right. that I played the first competitive game and this is this is like rugby yeah full contact able-bodied rugby yeah right which is crazy in itself it is sort of but and, and I had um I, I had a, a wee moment when I sort of said to the physio, but well, what if I get turned upside down and, and, you know, break my neck or something? And yeah. the physio was just, he said, that happens anyway, right? So right. It, it doesn't happen very often in rugby. I mean, that, that, that if you don't play, that's people's fear if you don't play rugby, right? So is that stuff can happen. But that ha- that, the amount of people that play, that is very, very rare. And, and, and accidents happen anywhere in the world doing any, any different thing, right? You, Mm. so my, my physio was just putting it into context for me he just said about well your chances to know better or worse than, than that happening to you than pretty much anybody else right yeah. if, if so if you, if you get turned upside down and dropped on your head that will happen whether you've got one arm or two arms yeah so to be not deliberate but what's that thing called where they it's illegal isn't it where they kind of turn them up and yeah 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 spear yeah. tackle yeah but were yeah, you but were you left-handed or right-handed so I was right-handed, so I had to learn to do everything again um, from scratch. The irony with the rugby actually it probably improved my catching, but did it? Um, but don't you need to to kind of hold the ball and hold and then push people away? See, that was the downside. You can't hand people off. So the as rugby players are told, but two things actually, it's a very effective tool to have. So if someone comes in for the tackle, you can actually push them away and. If they come in high enough, you can get a good hand off. And there's no better feeling than getting a proper hand off on someone. That, you know, as, as they come in to take you out, you push them into the ground. It's the greatest feeling in the world. Couldn't do that anymore. So I was completely exposed, especially if they came in from the right-hand side. I could hold the ball, uh, big hands. And, um, so can, and rugby players often hold the ball in one hand anyway. So I could catch it. I could throw it. I could pass it. I could do everything. The high ball was always a bit difficult but, um, and a bit interesting, but it, um, 
I've had a couple, so I still play. I still have the odd run out every now and again. I had one a couple of years ago, and I actually I caught a really I caught a high ball. Like someone put a high ball up, and I managed to catch it. And I stopped the whole game. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> so the ref blew the whistle thinking something had gone wrong. And I went, did you see that? <laughs> Which, uh, but, it, it, um, it, but for me, it was, but I was young as well. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a lot older now. I was, I was only 22 years old. I had the testosterone that a 22-year-old has. I had fitness. I had... No, just that level of energy that you have when you're younger that you don't have when you're a bit older. Yeah. And I, and I have to ask this. Um, as a 22-year-old uh, Essex boy, um, it might not be important in general life, but did it affect girls? So you're a good-looking guy. I think you're, you're probably a, a, a good-looking 22-year-old. I don't know about that. But, um, I mean... Do people, how do people react though? You know, did, I, I was very people... image conscious at the time, so I would have, I would have given off a really off kind of, um, yeah, I wouldn't have been warm to people coming up to me right. unless I knew them. I was very image conscious. It took me until I went back to Australia as a diving instructor to be, to be comfortable with the image. So I was, I was so conscious of it, I wouldn't have attracted people. So I would have found it very difficult. I mean, you know, if I was young, free and single now, I would say, look, enjoy it, mate, because you are going to get loads of attention and take the attention because it's yeah. going to open doors. But I, I, I didn't at the time. And to be honest, I was more, I was more, I was more about the safety net of my friends. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't like leaving the safety net of my friends. Right. I like I to be with them. It doesn't mean I didn't go off chasing girls when I was young, I meant, but, but probably not to, I, I was very conscious of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, so from starting to play rugby, then when did you then think, well, I could do other things and, and running is the thing? Well, I mean, the first thing I did was went, went back to Australia and did the scuba diving. I, I went back there and trained as an instructor and, and it's a similar process. Just just went out there. Um, I got a Winston Churchill uh, Memorial Travelling Fellowship to go back to Australia and look at scuba diving for the disabled. So the idea was to see how far you can get in the world of professional diving with a disability. Um, and I went to the first level of professionalism, which was a dive master. And then while I was a dive master, similar to when I was training with rugby for this is great but actually I want to do I want to do I want to be the guy that's that's responsible um and I believe I can do it and we had to make some adaptions to my kit and it's, there is no with that qualification and that course there is no oh if you're disabled you can do it this way you basically have certain things you have to be able to do and you can either do them or you can't do them and it's as simple as that Right. So the, 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 like the, 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 you go through the process and when you do your exams, you either do it or you don't do it. You pass or you fail. Uh, there is no, well, I, if, okay, we'll adapt it a little bit for you. you. You just have to do it. And I managed it. I qualified. Uh, and um, So then I was a scuba diver and I came back and I was doing scuba diving and I was teaching people to dive. And then it just, there was, um, I, I got an opportunity to go and meet some athletes that competed in Atlanta. Paralympians right. and I wasn't really interested in going back into athletics I'd done it when I was younger 
I, I, for me at the time, I, I, anything with disability, I wanted to stay away from. I wanted to do mainstream stuff. And I just saw like disability athletics as, as a load of disabled people giving it a go, which has its place, but it's not what I wanted at the time. And, it, fairly, um, it was fairly new, wasn't it then? It was. I mean, it's more it, established it now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the media, but in terms of the athletes, you still had the athletes. They still went to Paralympic Games. It was still a high standard. It was still hard to get on the British team. The British team had very high standards. They only take potential medal winners. They don't, they don't take anyone to give it a go. Right. They take people to win medals. Yeah. And um, so I met, and that's what happened. I met some athletes that have been to Atlanta. I'm, I'm, you know, one of them had come fourth in the 400 metres. And, um, and it was from talking to them, I realised that they were professional athletes. They didn't get the kind of funding and the, and the, and the, the media attention that the athletes get nowadays. But the way you train hasn't changed. You still have to train. And they was training like professional athletes. And I just thought, wow. And then, so I thought, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Is I will go, I'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to rugby and I'll be fitter, faster, stronger. Mm. It's kind of the mindset I've had with a lot of things in life. It's like, what's the worst that will happen? Give it a go. And if it doesn't work, you go back to what, what, what you was doing before. And that's what I did. So I went, gave athletics a go. Never planned to have a 12-year career. Never planned to be a champion. The idea was to see if I could win a GB vest. Um, because as an athlete, a young athlete, that had always been my ambition, right? So I'd also, how cool would it be to be like Co, Cram, Ovet? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up with that. Then I left athletics, as most people do. But then now I had a chance to go back to it. So I went back to it and I got my GB vest in 1998. Came eighth in the World Championships. Um, but, but then just thought... Was that 400 or what was that? That was, that was, over, that was over the four. Right. And um, I just thought, you know... Eighth in your first international is not bad. But that's with doing a, you know, just a smaller amount of training. What could I do if I really focused on this? And because before that World Championships as well, I'd actually, I was actually working in Spain as a diving instructor before the World Championships. So I was training while I was in Spain as a diving instructor. So I wasn't necessarily truly focused on, on the event. And I thought, wow, if I've come eighth, you know, and there's a big gap between eighth and a medal, like there's a big gap to fill. But I just thought, I wonder. And that's when I started to focus. And I thought, let's really focus on this. Let's see if we can go to a Paralympic Games now. I've won my vest. Now I want to go to the Paralympics. And as I got closer and closer to the Sydney Games, it was also becoming, I wonder if I can win a medal. Right. And that, that, was the, that was the ambition at Sydney was to win a medal. And what's the difference in training then? So did you, did you stop being in Spain? or So if you train, yeah. is it every yes. day? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, when, so basically when I got after the World Championships, um, I started looking at, I was training, I was training at my local club, which was Starrick Harriers, the club I've been a member of since I was 11 years old. Um, and whilst it's a great club, it's not necessary. You're not, they're not there to prepare you for a Paralympic Games and an international, because an international competition is a big thing, right? And they don't, they're not training to the level by the quantity, the quantity of the level that you would need. You know, you, with Thurrock Harris, it's open two days a week and one day at the weekend. I needed more. 
So that's when I was introduced to a guy by the name of A.O. Falola through the same physio actually that helped me through rugby and, and the rehabilitation of my arm. He was treating an athlete called Donna Fraser uh, who went on to come fourth in the Kathy Freeman race in Sydney 2000, the big, the big, you know, the big 400 meter race in Sydney. She came fourth in that. And I was introduced to AO. Um, and he, at the time, he said, he gave me some stuff and he just said, look, I don't think you're ready yet. Um, come back to me if you can do this, 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 and this. Uh, and he set some sort of goals for me to achieve because bearing in mind, he had an international athlete, right? He doesn't want some joker from Essex coming and messing yeah. stuff up. Yeah. So, so he, what were those things? AO was, Danny, what were those things? Was it, was it all so that? basically, he wanted me to hit a target. He wanted me to get to a time um, which was equal to Donna's, right. which would make us good training partners. I was a little bit off, of, off that time when I met him. And, to, and then he gave me some advice to how to get to that time. So it's things I could put in place with my training to add on to my training. And, and, and I, I went away and a couple of months later, I, I'd achieved what he sent me. And I went back to him. I said, I've done it. And he said, okay, let's, let's, let's hook up. And he, he basically said, we train at Woodford Green. We train sort of five days a week. Um, actually six days a week. And we used to train back then. And, um, he said, we're based out of Woodford Green Athletics Club. So come along, sort of see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Uh, be there, be ready. Because um, he wasn't just Donna, he had other international athletes as well. Yeah. And I still remember it. I got lost. I, could, I couldn't find, you could find, you can, anyone who knows, you can see Woodford Green Athletics Club from the M11 as you go into London. But I, like, I got lost. Because there's no sat-nav. I just had some directions that he'd given yeah. me in a map. And I actually missed the training session. I turned up late. I missed it. And um, so that was my first session with AO. Um, but then it was just a different world. Like it was, so, it was so, stepping up a level. So when this is going on, obviously people around you are, are kind of getting a sense of this. And, and what, like your parents, what's their reaction? Are they thinking this is keeping him busy or this is a great thing and it will be the making of him? Yeah, I think they just saw I'd engaged with it. So it was more I'd engaged with it. I was living with a friend at the time. Um, so my friend saw that I was focused on something. So what, it, what that meant, though, was I wasn't going out. I wasn't doing the normal stuff that I'd been doing. I wasn't going to the pub. But my friends were really good with that. They didn't sort of hassle me. They didn't put pressure on me. And as it was getting closer and closer to the Sydney Games, I was getting stronger and faster, and I was racing, and I was moving in the right direction. So it's starting to look potentially like I could make a Paralympic Games. Right. You, and you have to hit qualifying standards by set dates. You have to then be selected. Standards are not enough. So basically what happens is, just like the Olympics, the Olympics and the Paralympics will set a standard that you have to have to be able to race in that race. But then the GB team will say, well, that, that's great. That's the Olympic standard or the Paralympic standard. But... There's loads of people that are going to potentially be able to do that. We're going to, ours is, that, that's there. Ours is up here because we, we want you to be able to win a medal. If we're going to invest in you and take you, take you to Sydney for four weeks, yeah. then you've got to be medal potential. So I knew what, so that you know what you have to achieve. And then I'm, and I managed, and then I got it. I got my qualifying standards and I made my first Paralympic Games. And I think that's, that's kind of the moment that, well, I think my mum and dad knew I was back when I started playing rugby again. But th that, this is the moment I had something now. I almost had a career again. 
Yeah. And uh, how do you get told that you're going? Do you get a phone call or a letter? You get a letter, yeah. A letter comes through the post. Did you get a letter if you're not going? Um, I don't know. I never never didn't get selected. So <laughs> I think you, you probably get a phone call. Um, I think you actually get a phone call and then you get a letter that backs it up. So they phone you up and they just say, you know, congratulations. You know, because you know which day team selection is on. Yeah. So you're waiting on tender hooks. So pretty quickly after that, you get your phone, you use a phone call, you get a phone call just telling you. So what was that like? That, that must have been a great feeling. It's a relief because you put in so much on it. Um, but it's exciting because, but the thing with being an athlete as well is you've been selected, you've made the team, but there's still a period of time until you're going to go to the games. Now the Olympics is quite short. Like they, they do the Olympic trials. You have, to, you have to win the Olympic trials and have the standards to, and then you get automatic. And then off the back of that, they'll pick the other two athletes. Whereas Paralympics is different. We don't race in the trials. We have a, we have a standard we have to meet. So they actually pick our team a, a bit earlier. So they might select the team in say April and you're not going away till August. So you, 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 you've made your team. Hmm but you've still got to stay fit and healthy and work towards it. So that's just one part of it. Because in between that and going, you can get injured, you can get ill. Yeah. You could go off the boil and not be performing and get dropped. There's a lot that can happen. So that's just one stage. And um, so it is exciting, but it's just part of the process. And before that, are you racing in front of crowds? So when you do... No, just... Just no. club athletics and open stuff, yeah. I mean, before, I mean, I had things. I'd done an international race. I'd done Birmingham. I mean, there was no crowds back then. Right. Um, and I'd done, you know, I'd race at British trials and things like that. But just, no, nothing, nothing with a proper crowd. Sydney right. was the first time I'd ever seen a proper crowd. So then what was it like when, the, so the day that you, you all meet and you actually go in and, so I guess the family are buzzed up and mates are thinking, now he's going to be famous. What, what, what's it like when you get together and you actually, strangely enough, go back to Australia? Yeah, it's yeah, everything, everything, everything goes back to Australia. I'd actually been there about two months before that as well because the court case had come up for the accident right. in, uh, in the July, I believe it was. Um, so I'd actually not long got back from Australia again. So... Actually, no, it wasn't July because I had to fly from, I was training in America and the court case date came up and I had to leave America to go to Australia. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, we'd already been together. They, they bring the team together only once. The, like the athletics team will be together regularly on squad weekend. But then the whole Paralympic team comes together for the full squad weekend uh, a few weeks before the Games, which is when you get your kit and you get all the information about the upcoming Games. Um, they announce team captains and stuff like that. Um, but when you actually get out to Australia, you don't all fly out on one plane. You go out in waves. So people are coming from all over the country. So there's different airports, different hubs. They're flying in from different days, different times. So gradually the team builds. Um, and we don't go to Sydney first. We went to the holding camp in the Gold Coast. So we was up in the Gold Coast first and we spent two weeks up there. Right. getting over the journey, doing preparation. But that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's just, that's living, although you're nervous about the upcoming games, that's living the athlete's life. I mean, you know, you're in a nice place, 
get out, sun's out, you go training. That's all you've got to worry about is going training. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And you're with your mates, you're with your teammates. Gee, so, you got you got the best, yeah. you got the crest. Yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. was that four hundred meters then? Yeah, still the four hundred in Sydney. Yeah. And and I know what happened, but yeah. Tell everybody else what happened. Came away with a bronze medal, number three in the world. Uh, most amazing thing, was utterly disappointed by it. Um, really down after it uh, because that just met, didn't get the race right. Did not get the race 100% right. Um, and if I had got it 100% right, that in that race would have walked away with the gold medal. Right. Um, and it took me a long time to get over that. It took me a long time to come back from that, that disappointment. Um, but, it, it, you know, you have to. And it's, it's what you learn from these, these, these situations in your life. That's, that's the magic, if you can learn from it and move on. And, and that's what we did. Um, there's one thing I learned through the world of sport. If you lose, you're moving on to the next thing anyway. If you win, you're moving on to the next thing anyway. You know, sport doesn't stay still. Um, so, you know, came back from Sydney straight away, coach sits me down and just goes, right. Okay. What did we learn from it? What did we get wrong? Let's park it. Let's move on. What next? And we started planning the next four year cycle. Yeah. So it's interesting really, because when, when I look at your, what you've won, it, it kind of goes, um, gold, gold, and it goes, and a bronze. Yeah, there's only one bronze, but in a in a different lens, going through what you've been through, going to the Olympics and winning a bronze is amazing. But it looks like yeah. an thought now. It, it is, and that, I do appreciate it now. It just took me a while to learn that, and it's and it's just because on that day, like on that day, I didn't perform to the best of my ability now had I run the best race and the other two athletes run faster than me I would have been happy with a bronze but on that day I did not deliver what I was capable of delivering and on that day if I delivered my best race I should have won a gold medal um but in 400 meters Danny because it's quite short isn't it um I get it that in 1500 you know you can you can go okay well I want to be um third at, at, at the first lap and then I want to kick on the final bend and all this. What, what, what do you do in 400 metres that so is four, all bad? So 400 metres, you run your own race. You cannot be influenced by anybody else. Um, that's why some athletes will go off quicker than others. Uh, other athletes will go off a little bit slower, but then they're stronger in the second part of the race. You play to your strengths. So, but you have your own race plan because you're in lanes as well. So you've got people in front of you, you've got people behind you. Um, so you generally, you, you will know exactly like every 50 meters, you will know exactly what time you've got to hit that 50 meter marker in. Now it's not like you can see it on a clock or anyone's shouting it out to you. Mm. To be honest, actually often we'll have someone at the 200 meter mark that will shout out the time as we come round. but it's, and that, that's your own individual coach will do that. But so you know exactly. So for me, I, my 400 meter race was, you know, power out from the blocks, accelerate, 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 round the bend, get up to speed, or be up to speed by the first 50 meters, then sort of take it round the bend. And as I hit the back straight, that's when I'm going to start cruising down the back straight. 
but I was just off the pace. I was about a quarter of a second off the pace and you know it, you, you know it. And then, then you're playing catch up. And when you start to play catch up, so I get to the 200 meter mark and I'm down, not only down on my time, but I'm down on the other athletes. Now I'm having to work. And once you start working, that's when it starts to fall apart. Yeah. And everything tightens up and, and, and it, so it just wasn't the, per, so the 400 meters to get the best race, you have to run the perfectly executed race for you. Uh, and I just didn't do that. I was influenced by the event. I was influenced by the other athletes. And that's what I was frustrated with. Because if I'd just gone out and run the perfect race, I would have would have delivered a gold medal to myself. Yeah. But I didn't. But of course, that was, the, that was the catalyst for what was to come. It wasn't the end. That wasn't the finishing product. That was just my first games. And I learned from it. And I learned from the experience and moved all that forward into the next games. And what was it like coming home, having done all that with people around? And ultimately, you, you're still a you're still a medal winner. Well, everyone's excited. Like everyone's really excited for you, and and they, you know, they're really proud of you, and they want to see the medal. And but I was disappointed. So you're putting on like a fake face. You're <laughs> right. pretending to be really pleased because you don't want to. You know, you don't want to. If you're doing an interview or something, you don't want to be all down, do you? Yeah. So, but actually, you are quite down with the, what you got yeah it's crazy to think about it you got a Paralympic bronze medal and you, and you peed off of it you know but that's that's the mindset of, of a sports person that is that is sport that, that is probably you know one of the takeaways isn't it that it's about your expectations so if yours are gold and it applies to anybody isn't it you know yeah um if yours are gold then bronze isn't good enough if if yours was to take part then bronze is is an amazing achievement yeah it depends what your goal was so yeah like you say some athletes making the games is their gold medal other athletes getting to the final is their gold medal for me winning a medal was my gold medal now it wasn't necessarily it had to be the gold it's just that i didn't perform and um the sport is about performance and it's about it's about performing when you're under pressure it's about performing on the big stage and I just didn't perform under pressure. And, um, and that, you know, and that you have to walk away, walk away from that and learn from it and work out what you can do. But that's why we love sport, right? Yeah. Favourites don't always win. Um, Were you favourite for that? No, I was one of the favourites. Um, the guy that actually won it, his friend, he messaged me about two days ago. Um, still speak to him every now and again. His name's Heath Francis. And uh, he was the favourite on paper. He had the fastest time. And it was in Australia. It was on his home track. But he'd been injured going into the games. So he hadn't had all the preparation. Um, our times were quite similar. We were both knocking on the door of the world record. Um, I was chasing a world record as well. Because um, I believed I had it in me. So Heath, Heath didn't come into it in, in the best shape. Uh, I was in good shape, but there was a lot that happened. I had been to Australia just before that, you know, to, to go to go out for the court case that was associated with the accident. That all went pear shaped as well, so I had a lot to deal with. But um, we, but it's no excuses, right? You you have to leave that at the door when you race, and I don't make any excuses for it. I just didn't perform. Yeah. Um, and Heath did. Heath won the race. And, but he went on. He moved that world record to a phenomenal time. I mean, you know, when, once he got himself fit the next year, he, he was formidable. And you came back and, and you 
you moved on to 800 then, is that right? Yeah, not immediately. So we started training again, getting ready for the 2001 European Championships. Um, I was still doing the, the, um, the 400s. And then as we got through those championships, what, what was apparent with me is with the 400 metres, you want to go through the halfway marker, kind of a second, second and a half inside of your 200 metre best time. Right, so wherever you can run 200 meters in, you're not going to be going flat out in the first 200 of the four. So you, you hit your PB because you've got nothing left. Yeah. So you've got to be inside that. We couldn't get me any faster, so I was running as fast as I could. So when I went through the halfway marker, I was I was fairly close to my personal best time. I was running as fast as I could. So I was. It was becoming apparent that I was quite strong. Um, but I just didn't have that base speed. I couldn't do the 200 meters. Most 400 meter runners can do the two as well. Mm. I just couldn't do it. I wasn't fast enough. I, I could do it, but I just wasn't good enough. That's more about acceleration then, is it? It's, it's, accel- it's pure speed. I just, and, and it didn't matter what we did. My coach just couldn't get me. I needed to try and get like a second faster over 200 meters. And I just couldn't do it. And uh, we tried everything. So it was from that mentality my coach was like right so let's work on your strength more make you a stronger 400 meter run through doing the strength training i was getting stronger and stronger and it was like your tra- the way you train it's worth looking at the eight let's try the eight the same, same as all the mentalities right let's give the eight a go doesn't mean we stopped doing the four we just started looking at some eight based training and then in amongst the training throw your hat in the ring, go and do a couple races, see what happens, you know? What's the worst that happens? You, you decide the eight's not for you or the eight decides it's not for you. You go back to the 400 metres, having learned some other stuff and being a bit stronger because you've been doing 800 metre training. Yeah. So we just, we, just started, we just started experimenting with the eight. And I, I remember doing my first 800 metres at Watford and uh, standing on the start line, not knowing what to expect, what to do. Um, just waiting for a gun to go. Didn't have to, didn't have to worry about blocks. So that was easy. Just stand on the start line and the gun went and it, and it, it, it just felt right. That's the only way I can describe it. It just felt right. And from then we started really focusing on the 800 meters. Right. Which became, um, a great choice because then you went on and, um, you kind of conquered the world, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the eight was the, the, the change for me. And that's the thing, not, it's, not, it's about not being scared to make changes. I wasn't scared to make that change. I wasn't scared to step up. I mean, you know, it's tough. The training is hard for the 800 metres. I went from training once a day to twice a day. A lot more emphasis on training on your own, going out, doing lots of long runs, getting the endurance work in. I wasn't used to that. I was used to being part of a squad and training on a track. Uh, we, did, we did do track training sessions, but you're doing a lot more distance running. Elements of the training that I hated, I had to get used to, I had to get better at. Um, but it, it, it just felt right. When I raced, it just felt right. It was, it was, it, I was designed to run 800 metres. And, and that's the and thing with, with athletics, it finds you. Yeah. And then um, you then went off to the next one and, and won a gold. Yeah, Athens was the one I'm known for. Um, broke the world record about two months before the Games. How does that uh, feel? So Oh, it's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a massive achievement to break the world record. I broke it first uh, at an event, uh, a Watford meeting, uh, it's called a BMC meeting, British Mile Club. 
Yeah. It's like a specialist race group that you have to get, you have to qualify to be able to race in it. Um, Did you mean so to broke, do it? No, that's the, well, I've been chasing it for a while. Right. Um, and the problem is when you chase a world record or you chase a time, athletics is full of magic times, the sub 50, you know, the sub two, 800 meters, there's all these magic times. In, 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 and then you have your own ones because you've got your own targets you want to beat. When you chase the time, it's hard because you, you tend to tense up and you, that's all you're focused on. But I went to Watford one day to race and it was just a windy day. Did, so the weather wasn't great. So I just didn't have any aspirations of, of breaking world records. I just was concentrating on running the perfect race. When you run the perfect race, you tend to get the results. Because I wasn't focusing on the, the time, I was just running the race. I broke the world record. But it, it, couldn't, it wouldn't stand as a world record because the processes weren't in place for it to be a world record. So although we had electronic time and we had camera, the camera photos, there was no doping control. So I couldn't then have drug testing done that you needed to have to, for a ratified world record. Right. But I then went to the Olympic trials, um, which is the three A's Olympic trials at the time. Um, so I was running there um, and it was a really wet and windy day in Manchester as it always is. So once again, I had no aspirations of breaking a world record. What I wanted to do was run the perfect race. And I ran a, a perfect race for me and, and, and ended up breaking a world record. But because it was a, an Olympic trials, everything was there. So I could then go off. I could get, I could get all the paperwork. I could go and get my drug testing done. Yeah. And then it, it, that was a ratified world record. Amazing. So then you turn up at the games as a world record holder. Yeah, so then comes pressure. Then, then, then you are expected to win gold medals. Yeah, but of course it's not easy. You don't. You, you're, you're not the only one who can win a gold medal. And when you're when you're a medal potential athlete, the hardest thing is to get to the final because you, you can't win the medal if you go out in the heat. So, and in the 800 meters, you're in a pack race, so you can get tripped. You can, you know, you could get disqualified by stepping off the track, if, you know, by accident, like putting one foot outside the line or or breaking too early or elbowing someone by accident or elbowing someone on purpose, you could get, you know, you can get disqualified. So there's lots of ways you, you can't make the final. Um, so you've got to get there. But once you've made the final, then it's down to business. But of course, it's a really nerve wracking time. That is performing under pressure. That is when it, when the pressure's on the, the, the you know, and that's when it's being asked of you to deliver. Yeah. And you're the hunted then, aren't you? Yeah, because everyone wants a piece of you. Eh? Like everyone, you know, they know you are the one to beat. Um, so when we got to the final, there was three Algerians in the final, which is dangerous because they're going to work together to, yeah. to, to stop you from winning. You've got the former world record holder in there as well, Kona Omar. He's not very happy because I just nicked his world record. Yeah. Um, we had, yeah, and that, there was a mix, mix of athletes, but they, they were the dangerous ones for me. And, mm. and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be my friend on the track. Yeah. And how was that? How was that coming? Was it, did you win it by a distance or was it close? What, what, how? No, it, made, it looks like a distance in when you watch it on telly. It's less than a second. Right. So basically the race, my plan for the race, I had, you've got to take in the other pressure as well. I had 30, 35 friends and family out there. So they'd all, they'd all come out to watch me. They're all in the stadium, um, Union jacked up, yeah. Larry, loud. Um, <laughs> So there's a lot of pressure on you. Um, you have to try and shut that out. You can't win the race just because they're there. You're out there to win a race. But you also don't want to feel 
you know, if I lose this race, I'm going to let everyone down because that's not what it's about. It's about delivering for yourself. Um, so my, my race plan, but we had, we had a race plan, but we'd left no stone unturned in the preparation for that. Like me and my coach had prepared for that race. I could, I could, I could run a race in all different positions. So he'd put me into races before that race, saying I had to stay at the back. Other races, I had to be in the middle where I was getting push, shove, kick. Next race, I did at the front where you don't want to be in an 800 meters. So we'd prepare for me to be in any position and try and get out of any situation. Um, but my actual race plan was to go hard from the gun, go to the front, let somebody come on my shoulder so I wasn't actually leading the race. Let them, it sounds silly, but let them be half a step in front of me, but on my shoulder on the outside. So they are leading the race almost. I'm just sitting inside them. But then there's two of us that create a wall that then stops anyone from going around the outside. If anyone wants to go around the outside, they've got to go around two people, not one. Yeah. Um, then my plan was to just hold that, just hold that, just hold everyone behind us. And then when we got to about 1.50 to, to go, so 6.50 into the race, just start to accelerate a little bit, start to wind it up. And then until you hit the home straight and you hold it, but what happened was all that worked, every element of that worked until about 1.50 to go and the Algerian struck, he went and um, he attacked. But because I was ready for it and because he had to go around somebody else first, as soon as he attacked, I, you, I, you, you, if you're in it, if you're in the zone, if you, you're really, you know, you're in that race and the pack was still together, all, all eight athletes with 1.50 to go are still together. So it is a proper, tight, intense race. Um, and then suddenly this Algerian attacks from midway to the back. And I just, I was, I was intuitive. I knew it was happening. And then as soon as it happened, I, I retaliated to that. And then because I had the inside lane, just accelerated. But that's a scary place to be at the front with, uh, with 50, 60 metres to go because you've got nothing left. You can't accelerate. If someone comes through quicker than you, you've got, you've got, you've got no more speed. You've got, it's all out there now. And you just you just wait and you just hold that form. You just just pray for that finish line to get there, and eventually it did. And and so that's an amazing amazing feeling. And and so you you kind of got your goal then, really, haven't you? So did that feel a, a bit like completeness, or did you think there's more to do? It's more it's more a relief at the time because you put so much into it and so much you know you've worked so hard for it and there's been so much expectation on your shoulders. But that's the same thing with sport again, right? It moves on. So the coach goes, That's great, Dan. Let's go out and party. And we did party that night. Um, we had a great party that night. And um, but the, the then it's it's right, enjoy this because then you you know, enjoy the rest of your games out here. You've got nothing else to do apart from you know, I was only out for a couple of days anyway. Back to the UK, few parties, few celebration events. Four weeks after that, that, that momentous time in my life, it's right then. Back to training. Winter training starts today. We start preparing for 2005. We've got, you know, we've got a, well, a European Championships to get ready for. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's so, all. Yeah. So you're on that kind of um, production line of next game, Next goal to go forward, and you and do you win? You've won eleven gold medals. Do you know what? I, I honestly have never counted. I think it's about eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Through Europeans, world, and um, but of course, when I got that the gold in Athens, I hadn't won a world championship yet. 
So I had one European, I'd won, um, but I hadn't won a Europeans at eight. So, but I did have a European gold medal over the four, but I wanted the, the set. So the focus was on the Europeans in 2005, but the big focus was on the world championships in 2006, because that was my third world championships, never won the individual. And it was probably going to be my last chance to do it as well. So that was the next big focus. Yeah. And then, so throughout all this, do you, do you get to us, do you kind of reflect back and think, well, um, what would have happened if you'd have just got through that road uh, without any problems? I mean, you know, what, what would you have done? You'd have probably been an engineer and played a bit of rugby, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, everything happens for a reason. Uh, and I think it happened for a reason for me. I needed, I needed something to jolt me, to, to make, me, make me follow my dreams, really. Do you think that, um, do you think, I mean, do you, I, I believe that kind of thing, that fate gives you a hand. You were, you were meant to do this. You know, I, I think that's true of, of people. I think Federer was meant to do that. Um, I think Elvis was, was always destined to be Elvis. But yeah. it must be quite hard to take, though, that something as traumatic as that happens to you, and then you go, "Well, it was meant to be; otherwise, I, I wouldn't have done what I've done." It's still hard. I mean, to- I w- I, yeah, I wouldn't have said it at the time, um, but now when I look back now, I mean, you know, I only lost an arm. It's not the worst things happen at sea. I mean, you know, it causes a few problems in life, but not really many. So. And actually what it has done, it's opened more doors than it closed. In the early days, it closed all my doors, but then very quickly they started opening again. I've got opportunities that I never would have had. I never would have had the opportunity to go back to, I could have, there's nothing stopping me, but I wouldn't have done it. So I went back to Australia and was, worked as a scuba diving instructor for nine months. I've been an international athlete. I've done stuff that I'd never would have done because I didn't have the incentive to do it before. If, if I would have just come back from Australia, gone back into normal work and there's nothing wrong with that but you you have to think about my mindset my mindset is always about achieving it's always about doing more and this just gave me those opportunities um but I think for me it was more it gave me a realization because I talk about like I I had the dreams of being a professional rugby player um could I have been professional semi-professional maybe I probably had the talent to do it um did I have the mindset to do it no I just turned up to training went to the pub on a Friday night, played rugby on a Saturday. Mm. Um, what I didn't get was talent is never enough. And something happened after the accident. That I realized that you can be talented. You can get so far with talent, yeah. but there's a lot of talented people. The people that actually excel are the ones that do talent plus hard work. Yeah. And, and that's uh, the thing I've got. The, the, I, I remember listening to um, Andrew Castle. He was commentating on Federer. Yeah. Um, and the other guy said, um, you know, he's amazing. This, this you know, Federer's so fit. And he said, did you know that his fitness coach has had to sign an NDA? He's not allowed to write a book until Federer retires. And Castle said, well, he can write all the books he likes. It's not about how he trains. We need to find what's in his head. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, I've got, I've got three boxes for most things, but... With this, I think you've got a natural talent for things. Could be sport, but it could be, you know, accounts, whatever. And then you, you, the second box is you can learn more, so you can be coached, which is good. And then the yeah. third box is how you think. 
And unless all three boxes work, it never happens, does it? No, you've got to, you've got to, yeah, you've got to be prepared. You've got to have, the, you, there has got to be a skill there in the first place. Then you've got to work with it and you've got to keep learning. You've got to keep adapting. You have to have all those boxes filled. Yeah, I agree. You, 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 and they all have to lie. And, and, and to, be, to be able to perform at the right time, they all have to line up as well. And that's the other thing, you know, they've all got to line up at the right time. And there's, most of that is down to preparation and how we plan for it. And, but there is, there is luck in life as well. I mean, there's, there's a bit of luck in life and there's good luck and there's bad luck. And, and that's the bit, you know, we can make our own luck, but there's some bits of it that, that just happen, right? So, and we, and we, have, to, we yeah. have to accept that. And that's, that's controlling the right, and controllable. Yeah, meeting the right people, um, you know, meeting the right coach maybe. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 sometimes there's luck in who we come across in life, but there's no luck in whether you build that relationship or not. Yeah. That, that's you, yeah. But So the luck was I got introduced to AO, but there was no luck in building that relationship. That, that, was, that was us. We yeah, you made, you made the most of it, didn't yeah. you? Um, and, and what do you say, so, so you're an inspiration to people generally, but you know, you've proved that you can, to back to your original question to me, how do you get, how do you deal with adversity? Um, you, you prove that you can, but what do you say to people who, who like the 20, 20 year old Danny, who, uh, is not going to have that kind of incident to, to put him in a different direction. How, what do you say to people who can find their purpose without being forced to, which in a way you were? Yeah, I, th I think there's easier ways to find it than losing limbs. I mean, yeah, that's, that's my... I, I think you have to find it. That's the, that's, the, that's the magic word, isn't it? Fine. You can't tell people. I mean, you know, I, I coach. I work with people. Into, I coach as in like development coaching, not as in sport. Well, I do, I do coach sports, Robert. Development coaching, and um, it's, you've got to know you want it. So you've got to you've got to know you want something first. You can't be woolly about it. You, you've got to be. You know, you've got to have that plan. You've got to have that goal. Well, you don't need the plan because people can help you put the plan in place. But you need you need to know what it is you want to achieve. And then you've got to be prepared to, to put things in place and, and actually follow it through. So you, you can't make people do that. You can't, you've got to want it. So the difference was when I was 20, I just, I, you know, did I have the skills to be a rugby player? Yes. Did I want it enough? No. Because if I wanted it enough, I would have trained harder. I would have, I, when I went to Australia, my coach uh, from the rugby club, Tharak at the time, was a guy called Hickory. And uh, he, was a, he was an ex-all-black hooker. So we was coached by one of the best, you know. So we had some phenomenal coaching. And uh, when I went to Australia the first time, um, he, he, um, he gave me some clubs to go to when I got there if I wanted to continue my rugby. So I could actually play rugby in Australia. Never went, like, you know, got too involved in the Bondi Beach lifestyle and yeah. never went rugby. So I, did, I just didn't want it enough difference was with the athletics and the scuba diving I wanted it enough I wanted it yeah I think that I think that's really true I, I read this thing that said um well separate to that my daughter who's six, 17 at the time I got her a job in a, a very nice farm shop with a with a nice cafe yeah um and and she was waitressing and then um she then went back to school that was in holidays and she said to me 
do you know, the people are so ignorant. You know, the, the, the way they treat waitresses is so awful. She says, I never want to be a waitress. And I said, it's great that, because yeah. I think sometimes you need to start with what you don't want. Now, I'm not yeah. I'm sure she never would be, but it's a tick in the box, isn't it? That say, I never want to be in a position where people can treat me like I'm some kind of underling. And I do an exercise sometimes with people and go, start with what you don't want. You know, yeah. I don't want to... I don't want to be told what to do all day or I don't want to sit in a, in a, you know, you train to be an accountant, but you've decided you don't want to sit in an office all day. Cause I think you, I think it's hard for people to find out what they want. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know what we want. That's the problem. That's where we just get stuck. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it is hard. And, and with, with sport, once you get in sport, I mean, sport's quite easy, right? It, it's very target driven. It's, we know when the next games are, we're always aiming for something. Um, we're always on a stopwatch. It's it's almost easy to go through those processes. It's not easy to do, but the actual processes are with yeah. sport. And we are we we follow without knowing it. Almost we follow very traditional goal setting systems. Really, you know, we know exactly what we want to achieve, and we know when we want to achieve it, and um, and then we know all the stepping stones in between, mm. um, which is all the other competitions we'll go to. And then we know, then we work out what we want to do at each section. And then, and then we look at how we're going to do it. Right. So, and then, so we put all this, without even knowing we're doing it, we're doing it. Um, but you this is important and it shows you how important it is. Yeah. You can do that in, I think it's interesting that you can transfer that discipline to other things. I met a guy recently and um, uh, he, he, he was, we were presenting the values for this business. And he said, oh, I've, I've got my, my key values. So we, and we were going to buy this business. Yeah. And he said, and I said, oh, great. So what, what's the value then? What are your values? And he said, well, I don't have them with me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he owns this. And he said, uh, let me think. Um, so we're all sat there thinking, can't be complicated. And he said, oh, yeah. One was that uh, I want to be the most profitable independently owned business in the sector. I said, it's not value. <laughs> I thought, I said, that's great. Um, are you? And he said, um, no. And I said, who is? And he said, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I thought, you know, it's like you going to the games saying, I want to win the gold medal and somebody saying to you, Who's the fastest in the world? And you going, I don't know. See, I do. I, I, I have these five key elements that, that is, is like my little map to success. And, um, and, and, the, and the magic is the knowing, it's the why. So, yes, I wanted to be a gold medalist, but a lot of people can say that. But if you don't understand why, you're never going to invest in it. I knew why I wanted to be a gold medalist. And it wasn't because that I could say, I was a gold medalist or I was number one in the world at something I did ages ago. It's because of the accolade that the athletes that held that position had. So the, I mentioned Kona Omar earlier on where well, he was the world record holder before I had it. Um, he was, he was an awesome athlete um, from the Ivory coast. So he didn't have the facilities and the, and the, you know, the, the, the lifestyle that we had in the UK. 
So what he did was, for me, more phenomenal, you know, mm. training in a war-torn country yeah. that, and then became a world record holder. So I knew that to, to be the best, I had to beat him. Once I'd beaten him, I then knew I could say that I was the best in the world. But because the, the accolade was, it was about, it was about sort of the other athletes fearing I wanted, you know, the, I wanted to get to a point where the, the, the other athletes feared me, yeah. but respected me in equal measure. Because yeah. that's what I had for him. You know, I feared him on the track, but I respected what he could do. Yeah. Um, because that, that, that's not an arrogant thing then. It's, it's the respect is there for that athlete. And uh, that's where I wanted to get to. So the, I knew what I wanted. Easy, right? Mm. Keep, keep the goal simple. Be number one in the world. You know, don't overcomplicate it. But it was actually that reason why, because that was the thing that was gonna, that was the thing that was gonna engage me. Yeah, and and so what? What are the five then? What What are your five? Things? So my five key elements is you have the goal, um, and and there are multiple goals. So you have career goals, long term goals, short term goals, yeah. personal goals. But you have the goal, right? But for me, a goal is just words. We we can all say stuff, right? We can all say, "I want to be a gold medalist." I want to be a professional rugby player, right? I did it myself. So we say this stuff. Want to be CEO of a company, want to, want to drive a Ferrari. It, it doesn't really have a lot of meaning. It is just words. So the magic is in the words. So the magic is in the why. So why do you want, why do you want to achieve this? For me, the why, I've explained the why was because of, you know, I wanted to be feared and respected by the other competitors that I race against. Mm. Um, I knew why, and, and you know, there's a lot of other whys to it as well. Yeah. But in terms of my sport, that that was it. And then it's the mapping, you know, it's the journey, it's the planning, it's how we get from where we are today to where we want to be. Um, and I talk about my that journey, and I talk about the fact that I knew what time I was running. Into you know, when we started looking at the 800 meters, I knew what time I could run an 800 in. But we started looking at, and you mentioned it, you know. Well, who are the fastest? Well, that's what we were doing. In 2000, we was looking at what times people had won the 800 metres in in 2000 and then projecting what times people would potentially win the 800 in in 2004. So we actually had a time on paper that we thought I would need to be able to hit. And that's what my coach said. He said, if you want to win the gold in four years, you need to be able to run an 800 metres in this time. And we started looking at how we was going to do that. And then you put your team around you, which is the bits important. No one's in, no one's successful on their own. But I look at professional team, the net, the professional team you have, but you also need the support network as well. Because if you're going to go on a journey that's going to be a tough one, a long one, yeah, um, it's never going to be easy. No one gets to the top on an easy ride. It's it's going to have its ups and its downs. It's going to be a roller coaster. So you need your support network around you, the people that put their arms around your shoulder sometimes, or or give you the, the kick up the arse that we all need every now and again to get us back on track. So you have the, you've got the goal, you've got the understanding behind it, you plan the journey, you put the team in. And then the, the magic at the end is the evaluation, constantly evaluating what you do. Uh, this is where like, we look at the incremental gain. So we, you know where you are, now how do you want to get to that? And I break that down to, for me, that was four seconds. So I had to be four seconds faster which to anybody's not a big amount of time, but to a track athlete, that's a lot of time. That's about 30 meters. And, and the mentality is imagine running the fastest race you've ever run 
and then someone goes, that's great. That's really good. Then you ran the personal best. Any chance you can be four seconds faster next time? Because if you want to, and you're like, you're in a puddle on the floor and you just go like, you're going to laugh and you have just run my fastest race. Yeah. So if the mentality is just the four seconds, it, it, it's insurmountable. So we break it down and it's one second a year. But one second still a lot, a lot of time. It's still seven, eight meters. We break it down again, half a second every six months. And we got to the point where my coach just sat me down and he just said, Dan, if you can get a quarter of a second faster every three months, you can be a champion quarter of a second every 12 weeks right. that is the simplest maths you'll ever hear in your life right yeah all you've got to do down quarter second every 12 weeks job done doesn't mean you're going to win the medal but it means you're going to be in a position to win the medal you've got to be in the position to win it so and that's how we did it and uh, and if you and, and you can do that with anything like any goal you if you break it down enough it suddenly becomes achievable you know yeah. Just, I want to say I want to save up for a house. I need ten thousand pound deposit, and I've got to do it by two years. Ten thousand? Yeah. I'm going to find ten thousand pounds. You know? Yeah. Like, wow. That's only five. That I say only. It's five thousand pound a year. That's a lot of money, though. You know? But actually, if we break that down again, if we divide that by twelve, and suddenly we start breaking it down, and it's it becomes achievable. Yeah, hundred quid a week. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to do the maths, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Because you're right, and and I do think that 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 does whatever you do, um, be it you know some kid doing A levels or whatever. I think breaking that down and looking at those marginal gains, um, and in business, it is is you know if all teams did that, and I and I try I try and do that is get you know what does it mean? So. Um, you know, if you want to grow revenues by 5 million over the next year and you're in August, so what will the revenue be in September? And most people don't know. Yeah. See, the way, the way we do that, with, the way I do that with teams as well, is you say, like, if you want to grow by 5 million, that, that is a phenomenal amount of money, right? And you say, right, and so when do you want to do it by two years' time? So that's two and a half million a year. So, okay, how many people in the business? You know, and it does, it, it, and you say it's not as simple as that, but you can make it as simple as that. So, how many people in the business? So, like 200. So, right, divide that 250, you know, that, that two and a half million by 200 people. Now, how much have you got to do each year? Right now, divide that down into, into months, weeks. And now, all of a sudden, to make that five million, everybody's got to increase their turnover by, say, 100,000, whatever. But it suddenly becomes really achievable. And it's not as simple as every, you know, if you're the business has got 100 people, all 100 have got. I know it's not as simple as that, but actually, if you make it that. Yeah. Yeah. And once you make it that simple, once you make it that excitable, that's when people engage with it. If you just say, right, guys, um, new business strategy, 5 million in the next two years, off you go, do it. They're going to go, 5 million, you're laughing. Yeah. We're already flat out. How are we going to. Um, but if you then go break down, break down, break down, break down, and over this, this is what we're going to do month on month, week on week, because then you're able to see if you're going in the right direction. Yeah. And, uh, and, and people get engaged with it and they get excited with it. And, um, but none of, that, none of that matters if the sixth one isn't there. That's the hidden one. That's, that's the passion. That's the drive, because that's the thing that gets you through the tougher times. Yeah. Now, individually, you, you do it because you know what your own passion is. You know what you want to achieve. And if you want it enough, 
you have the passion to get through the tough times and you've also got those people around you that will help you. Um, but of course in a business, it's a lot harder because not, if you, if you just say in, in two years time, we want to increase our revenue by 5 million, not everybody's necessarily bought into that. So that the magic happens is getting everybody bought into the same goal. Yeah. Once okay. they're bought into it and once they know what their part is, then they're going to be more focused and energized in helping you achieve it. Yeah. Somebody asked me the other day, um, how do you deal with members of your team who, are, who don't, don't want to be on the mission and, and don't want to buy into the values? And I said, well, why did you hire them? And he, yeah. kind, of, he kind of stepped back and said, well I, um, well, I don't know really. But that's where it starts with, isn't it? You then need to put the team around you that believe yeah. in the same things as you. You've all got to be, you've all got, you buy into the same thing. Yeah, you, you've got to all believe that the same thing is achievable. But of course, if someone's not buying into it, it's not always on them. Yeah, sometimes the onus is on you. The onus is on you to find out why they're not buying into it. Because it might be that, you know, you just haven't explained it. You haven't given them a role within it. You, like if you just tell them they've got to increase revenue by 5 million, this is their part of it. You know, their part of the business has got to, their, their, their job is to do this. Well, if you've just told them what they've got to do, they haven't bought into it. They haven't, they don't have any ownership over it. Like I had ownership over my goal. Yeah. I was in control of it. And, um, so you need to, you need the buy-in from people. So sometimes it isn't as simple as it's just the wrong person. It's just that they're not motivated. They're not engaged to work towards it. So you can find out why, you know, what, what, what motivation do they need to help them achieve that, to help you achieve that goal? Yeah, I love that. So, so what's next then? What's what's the next gold medal for you? Um, so for me, it's about everything everything I do is about being the best I can be. It's not not necessarily about being the best in the world, but doing the doing what I do the best I can be. So I'm I'm as we speak now in the same position everybody else is stuck in my house, wanting to be outside. Um, we have everything I do is so I'm a I'm a speaker. Uh, in case you haven't worked out, I can speak. Um, a lot um, but who would know that eh? my school report said if only Danny could stop speaking long enough he might learn something and I actually went on to become a speaker yeah. but um, so my job is to work at conferences events I host I do stuff like that um, that's not happening right so the diary wiped pretty quick when this happened yeah. so I have my business as well which is a 1404 performance business which is where we go in we help businesses understand what high performance looks like me and my business partner, same thing. We work with people. So that diary emptied pretty quick as well. So now we are, we've created an entire educational, a virtual educational program for teachers or all teaching staff, um, taking our high performance models that we've delivered to businesses and now, now working with someone from education, we've created the education version because you have to adapt, you know, and that's what, you have to be flexible. You have to adapt. Sports people are no different. You know, we had our plan, but it didn't work out. You know, things changed along the way. We had to be ready to adapt and change. And we've, we've done that now. So the next, you know, for me, the next gold medal is to be able to get back out doing what I love doing, which is speaking in front of people. But in the meantime, it's about creating business and revenue and keeping those connections and those relationships going with people until we get back to a normal way of life. And then, and then it is, and then it is just, Doing what I treat my speaking like I did my 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 racing. I'm I competitive. I bet you do. I want to be the best speaker they've ever had. Yeah, 
Well, hopefully when all this ends, we'll meet up. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you've given me a lot of your time, Danny, which I appreciate. Ah, it's a pleasure. I've got, I've got something that um, I always like to ask. So you've, you've got a dinner and I want you to put your four, uh, alive or dead, your four favourite dinner guests. Oh, wow. Now that would be, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really good with stuff like this, if I'm honest. I, um, I think I would, I, I tell you that, like, I tell you what I would say as a, as a, a dinner guest, I've never looked up to anyone, like, because people are people, right? And they've all got imperfections and I've never wanted to be like anybody. But I had to interview, and I had to interview Haile Gabriel Selassie uh, a few years ago. Um, and he's the, one of the only people, so he was waiting in a room uh, to be interviewed and I was, I was coming in with a camera crew. And he's right, and I'm not, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of what he achieved, but I've never sort of, you know, because what he's done has been beaten now anyway. So it's not like he was unbeatable. He was just great. But there was something about the guy. Right? And I walked into this room and, um, and, and, and uh, I'm not normally like this, but that, that, there was just almost sort of stopped and he was like, wow, there is something about this guy. There is an aura around him that is magical. Right. And I was kind of, you know, I, I, through my life in athletics, I've met the queen and nearly every royal that you meet along the way. And, and it's phenomenal, right? You meet the queen. But to me, you're just a handshake, right? It's lovely, but she shakes your hand. And um, if she said to me, Dan, oh, I saw your race. It was awesome. You stuffed up the one in Sydney. But in Athens, you absolutely smashed it. Yeah. I'd be on the floor in a puddle. I'd be like, oh, my God, the Queen watched my race. Yeah. But, but there was something about Haile Gabriel Selassie. So, yeah, he'd probably be on there just right. to find out. Um, I always thought, I've always thought Robbie Williams is bonkers. So I think he'd be a laugh to have as, yeah. a, as a dinner guest. He would. And then um, possibly, I think, actually, I'd add two more in there because I think I'd probably have my two granddads in there. Because they, I lost them quite young, so I, they never got to see. And you, and you know, grandparents all, you know, grandparents always the ones that yeah. you know love it. So they never got to see what I became. They only saw me as a kid. Like yeah. I lost one when I was really young, and one when I was a young teenager. And I, you know, I was a bit of a handful when I was younger. So they never, they never got to see what I became. So they'd be great as well. Yeah, they could, they could share the stories. Yeah, yeah, and have a bit of a sing song with Robbie as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lively I thought you were going to say the Queen for a minute. No, no. Unless she, unless she'd watched my race, then, then like you say, I would be in awe. Yeah. yeah. But if she had, I don't think she'd have say. I don't think she'd have said you stuffed it up. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it is. But that that would. I mean, you can you imagine? I mean, like we've been yeah. to Buckingham Palace a few times and and done the receptions, and and it is you know it's exciting and it's lovely. But you are a handshake, and I don't mean any disrespect by that. But, but why wouldn't you be? Like the Queen's meeting hundreds and hundreds of people every day. Yeah. But so you are. You do your bit, and it is lovely every photograph taken. And um, but as I say, if 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 you know the Queen had said to me anything like that, I would have just been Queen. Watch my race. Yeah. Man. She'd have said to you, "I can't believe that you were half a second down at two hundred meters in that first yeah. game. Yeah. What were you doing? Well, yeah. What was you thinking, you idiot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great yeah right, Danny, that's been brilliant I've loved it alright oh, no, thank you you are a good speaker and you're good you're good entertainment I, I love that oh, I thank you to, I wanted to get to you 
um, you know, I was, I was fascinated about the whole thing and how you felt because, you know, going back to when you asked me that question, um, maybe it comes out, but, you know, I, I look at you and think, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure which, maybe I just sat in the house and with Jack Daniels. You never know, do you? But it, well, I, I mean, I, I, I've met a lot of people. I said it earlier, didn't I? I've met a lot of people through, predominantly through Paralympic sport now, but in other avenues as well that I've done. And, and in my early days, I used, to, I used to work with the Limnus Association. I used to go out and meet people that had recently had accidents and help put things in place for them. Uh, and now through my world of Paralympic sport, I've met a lot of people that have done a lot of things to themselves. And, um, and I think through it, through it, it, it doesn't matter my physio told me this and uh, I never really resonated with me until later life. He said, it doesn't matter what happens in your life. It will never change you. You'll always be the same person, right? So if you're always half glass, half glass, half full person, then you're going to be the same, but and some, if you go through a massive trauma, if you're always a glass, you know, sorry, glass half empty, if you're glass half full person, so it's always the full side of it. You're going to be like that, but you're going to be out striving to achieve stuff. And, um, and I found that, and it, it doesn't matter what trauma people go through, and there's all sorts of trauma. There's losing people, there's illness, you know, there's, there's what I went through, losing bits of your body. There's a lot, you know, we, we can lose our jobs. Our, there's all sorts of trauma out there. That, and, yeah. and none of us, none of us, there's one thing we're going to be sure of, none of us are getting through life unscathed. Yeah. You know, it's not possible. What, something's going to get us at some stage, and, and it will. But the one thing I've learned is it doesn't matter what happens to us. We all, 99.99999% of us all come out the other side of it with an extra strength, an extra resilience. And I think an extra strength is a strange way to look at it. You know, you lose a limb or you lose your loved one too early or something like that. But there is, a, there is something that you come out with. Yeah. Um, and the, but the only difference is, is the amount of time it takes us to get through it. Some people are very quick. Some people takes a lot longer. But I think it's true testament to the human spirit that we do get through this stuff and, and most people do um, it's just that time period that's very different and that's you know that 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 is what kind of excites me a little bit really in the life is that you know it doesn't matter what it throws at you we will get through it. it's just another hurdle yeah it's All just right. just stuff yeah well that's 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 really inspiring and you are uh, you are an inspirational guy so it's been great fun yeah, lovely. Lovely to speak to you. Yeah, so um, go and enjoy the sun. It's all we can do, isn't it? Yeah, I know. And it'd be great to, because um, we're, you know, we're quite closely aligned in what we do, so it'd be great to stay in touch and see what we can do going forward. We'll definitely do opportunities. that. And, and, and I've, I've, yeah. I've got through your book. Have you started mine yet? Do you know what? It's, it's, no, it's in my drawer. I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm going to read, I 100% want to read it, because I like... Um, so I've, I've got, because of my coaching, I've got to read a certain coaching book and I've been reading it for 18 months and I'm only two thirds of the way through. It's killing me. Right. But I've read other books and the ones I've engaged with are the story style books. So I'm looking for, so I'm, I, I promise you it is the next one to be read. Because what I planned to do on this was to take, to ask you questions on every chapter. Yeah, no, I haven't read it yet. But as I say, I'm not... <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm an Essex boy that was educated in the eighties. I can promise you it takes a lot of energy for me to get through reading. Right. Um, well, when we do meet, I'll be quizzing you. Yeah. I, I promise you I'll send you a message when I've read it. Cause it, right. it, it's, ne- it's next up. So I All promise right. you. Great. All right, Danny. That's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Cheers, Peter. Take Speak care. To you later.
Cheers now. Bye-bye.